Good morning, Crossroads. It's good to be with you. We're going to do a throwback Sunday. These are songs that when I first became a worship leader were real popular and they're near and dear to my heart and thought it'd be a good opportunity just to kind of revisit back to the mid-90s, right around the time the church was born. So let's stand That's and like sing together. Way back.
no school like the old school, right? <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning. If you haven't grabbed communion yet, there's some on the tables around the backs of the room. Also, um, if you haven't grabbed our bulletin, I always get those two turned around, the bulletin and the connection card. The connection card is in the bulletin, and the bulletin has everything that's going on through over the next few weeks and months. And inside there, you'll find our connection card. We encourage you to fill that out. You can tear it out and fold it up and put it in the offering uh, boxes that are located on the walls. They're just kind of hanging there, brown boxes. So at the end of the service, go ahead and just pop it right in there, as long with any offerings that you might have. Would you take a moment to greet everyone around you? So this next song is a song that I've really kind of latched onto throughout the years. Um, probably my favorite song from the era in which this was written. And I think it's because it, it reads like a song. Like if you put this in the Psalms, you wouldn't know that it wasn't a Psalm kind of song. It's just written so well. And it talks about the good times, it talks about the bad times. Regardless what comes, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour 
song called mighty to save and in the bridge of it it says shine your light for the whole world to see this thing we're doing together right now at one time seemed really really odd to the world you know, we're talking about drinking the blood and eating the flesh and there was a time in early Christianity when they considered Christians to be cannibals and rather than be shamed by that and stop doing it they did it proudly, and they shine their light for the whole world to see. And here we are in America, 2,000 years later, still celebrating what he did on the cross because those Christians were not ashamed. They were so in love with Jesus that they were gonna shine their light no matter what. So we're gonna do this together, and we're gonna do it with great pride. We're gonna take communion together as a body of believers and say, yes, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and he is alive.
sitting in an aisle seat, the center aisle, about halfway back, and uh, it was a Sunday morning, and the person who was up front was taking prayer requests from people, which is kind of the way things sometimes are done in smaller churches, and, and this was a smaller church. It was uh, a church that was maybe two and a half years old at the most, over in Topeka. Um, and, and I'd been going there for just a few short months, maybe, maybe three months or so. And so they were taking prayer requests from different people on the floor, and then after, uh, after got several prayer requests, uh, he invited everyone to bow their head and to pray. And so I, along with everyone around me, was bowing our heads and and praying along with him as he lifted up the, the individual prayer requests that had just been mentioned. And it was at that moment it happened. I can't tell you what month it was. I can give you a guess. Um, and I can't tell you what the sermon was that day. But boy, I can tell you a lot about this moment in time because it was kind of ingrained in my mind because it was the very first time I ever 
experienced what I started experiencing. While he was up front praying, the thought came into my mind. Crazy thought, you know, now that I recall it and I'm telling you about it. But, uh, but the thought that came into my mind is what if all of this is a sham? What if what we're doing here, it has no substance, no basis to it? What if right now at this very moment, you know, with my eyes closed and as I was praying, what if right now at this very moment there are dozens of people around me with their eyes open and they're looking over at me with big grins like he really does believe this. That was the thought. And it wasn't a thought that stirred up laughter within me. It really was unsettling. And it was a thought that didn't really go away. Because then we moved into the time of the sermon. And throughout the sermon, whatever it was that was being spoken that day, um, my mind was going down a road that was wrestling with, how do we know the stuff he's reading in this book wasn't written like 300 years ago in an attempt just to start a new religion or to sway people. How do we know it's true? And the thought kind of morphed into being, well, even if it was written way back in Bible times, a couple thousand years ago, even if it was written back then, how do we know that what we're reading today is even a far cry similar to the way it was originally written. So it was like one thought was leading to another thought. What if the resurrection never really happened? What if there ever, never really was a guy named Jesus? And, and the thought came into my mind, it's so fundamentally basic that even questioned God. What if there really isn't a God? To begin with, it was like a flood. It was like a, it started as a small crack, and then all of a sudden, all these thoughts come flowing in to that crack, and it was unsettling for me. I mean, at that, up until that particular day, I had just given my life to Christ about three months earlier, and so in a lot of respects, I felt like I was riding the crest of the wave. I was experiencing stuff in my life that, uh, um, you know, for us that are older, you know, we look back on with it. Well, you were just a kid. I was 17 years old. But I knew I'm on to something here. And I was experiencing a peace. I was experiencing um, a, a sense of direction in life that I'd never had before. A purpose in life. And I'd been experiencing that for about three months. And then that Sunday came. And all of a sudden, I started struggling with all of those kinds of thoughts. What I'm describing involves doubts. And that clearly, in my life, was the first day I started struggling with some, some doubts. And as I pointed out earlier, they... They were unsettling. And 
I know from having talked to many, many people over the years since that time that they are unsettling in the minds of others as well. But, you know, wrestling with doubts isn't anything that's new. It's something that I've gone through. It's something that, that I would venture to guess the majority of you have gone through. In fact, some of you right now are right in the thick of struggling with some doubts, uh, faith-related type of doubts right now. But, but you can even go into the Bible and you can see examples of it. Here's, here's an incredible example. Matthew chapter 28 this is after the crucifixion, after Jesus' burial, after the resurrection, after multiple resurrection appearances. All of that has happened. And then we read this verse right at the end, toward the end of Matthew's gospel. It says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. It says 11 because at this point, Judas Iscariot, well, he took himself out. You know that story. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, I can't really break that down and describe the exact nature of the doubts that they were going through, but it very much is the word that we think of when we think of the word doubt. They were doubting, even at that particular point in time. Maybe part of the doubt was, this is all too good to be true. You know, maybe this is all a hallucination. I don't know. I don't know exactly what they were doubting, but they were struggling with some doubts. Another time that you're probably a little more familiar with is recorded in Matthew chapter 14. And this involves a time that Jesus was walking out on the water. Remember, the disciples were in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm hit. So you have the wind, the waves, the rain, all of that that's happening. The disciples, they, they, many of them, if not all of them, were concluding they were about to be capsized and sunk in the middle of this storm. And then someone spotted a figure walking out on the water, and it was Jesus. And then Peter says, Lord, if that's you, then beckon me to come out to you. And and Jesus does. And so Peter steps out of the boat and takes a couple steps toward Jesus. But then, of course, he, as you know the story, he took his eyes off of Jesus and was looking at the effects of the waves and the wind and all of this. And he began to sink. And then this happens. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, as you read the next couple of verses and all, you, you, what you don't see, I think, is notable. You don't see Jesus threatening to kick Peter out of the group. Well, you're having doubts. You're out of here. I want people that are more stable than you. No. As a matter of fact, you go later in the New Testament to one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, Jude, which only has one chapter, and you see this in verse 22. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. And I think that goes a long way in helping give insight into why Jesus wasn't jumping Peter's case and, and all, because if I were to paraphrase that, statement, I, I, I would say it like this, that we are to cut, cut people a little bit of slack when they're 
struggling with doubts. So whether a person has been a Christian for only a couple of months or whether a person has been a Christian for many years, the possibility exists that doubts will surface and will stir up anxiety and trouble a person. The reality of the matter is that doubts sometimes are the things that kind of paralyze people who are on the outside looking in, who are still kind of in that investigative mode of kicking the tires of Christianity, trying to decide that, am, am, am I going to take the plunge? Am I going to go all in or not? And then they kind of stay, you know, in that mode because of the uncertainty and partly because of the effect that the doubts are creating with them. Well, see, this is why we're doing this series. We're going to devote all of May and all of June in talking about uh, questions, a lot of different questions. Some of the very questions that we're going to be dealing with are... Uh, very much a part of some of the doubts that you have found yourself wrestling with at some particular point in time, or maybe even right now. Now, some of the, the questions that are a part of this series, you'll look at and you'll think, okay, well, I haven't really struggled with that. But I can almost guarantee you, you know someone who has, though. And so we want this series to be beneficial for you, to kind of shore up and strengthen your own faith. But we also want this to be something that can help equip you to be able to reach out to some of the extended family members or co-workers that you have that you know are struggling with some of these very questions. And so this is why we're going to devote two months to this whole topic. What we believe, let me just start it all off with this. What we believe that is found in this book, it is true and reasonable. And those aren't my words. I'm just quoting someone else who said that in Scripture. It's true and reasonable. Here we have Paul. He's talking to King Agrippa and Governor Festus. And Paul has been under arrest um, you know, there's been some charges, that, uh, accusations that have been brought against him. And, and so um, Festus talked to King Agrippa when he came to town to sit, sit in on and visit with Paul and uh, try to give me some insight on what you pick up from Paul. And so Paul came before the two of them. And in the previous verses, he's, he's basically just sharing his story. And in the process of sharing his story, Paul draws reference to the resurrection of Christ. And Governor Festus immediately jumps all over that and says, Paul, that's crazy talk. You're insane talking about a resurrection. And, and where Paul responds by saying, no, this isn't insane. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And then he goes on and says, this, ha this didn't take place in some corner somewhere, which is basically Paul's way of saying, check it out for yourself. Spend a little bit of time digging into this and find out for yourself that this is based in reality. One of the things that for over 27 years as a part of this church that we have always tried to emphasize to people is that to come to Christ, to become and be a part of his church 
you don't have to check your brains at the door. This is something that, that can stand up to questions. That if you struggle at times with doubts and all, come, spend time with us. Dig in the scripture. Ask your questions. And we'd be more than happy to help you in whatever way that we can as you work your way through all of this. The Bible says that we are to love the Lord our God with, what is it? All our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So you don't check your mind at the door. You don't leave it behind. Yes, this is a matter of faith, but it is not a matter of blind faith. You know, this, this whole thing of being followers of Christ. So with having said all of that, let's get into the very first question. The, the most fundamental question of all, and that is how do I know that God exists? That's where we're going to start. It seems like an appropriate place to begin. Let me give you three reasons why this matters, you know, that God exists. First of all, without God, there is no ultimate purpose or meaning in life. Now, I want you just to kind of think this through. Set your mind on this here for a moment. A, fe a fellow named Carl Sagan, which a lot of you will recognize that name, even though he passed away, before the turn of the century, he died in 1996, he wrote the book, Cosmos. Now, he denied being an atheist when he was directly asked if he was an atheist, but he was an atheist. He frequently ridiculed people with religious beliefs. He thought of them as being foolish. Several of the people who were closest to Carl Sagan, they described him as being an atheist well, the opening statement of his book, Cosmos, starts with this sentence. This is the opening sentence. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That's how he begins. He believed that humans should move beyond the age-old belief that life was a special creation of a personal God. He believed that humans were simply an evolutionary accident. In fact, uh, the, the phrase that he would use that he was remembered for uh, was this phrase, a moat of dust in the morning sky. That's how he described us and life on earth. Think about it. If we are the result of a chance reaction of chemicals that had taken place at some particular period of time in the past, then we have no reference point in which to look to that gives meaning to life. So in that sense, in many respects, we're not any more significant than a swarm of mosquitoes are if we just came about by random happenstance. You remember Solomon's account in the book of Ecclesiastes. It was about a year and a half ago I did a series through Ecclesiastes and I'll just level with you. I didn't say it at the time but I did not enjoy that series much because <laughs> um, I, I just I find that as being a pretty depressing book. I mean it ends on a high note obviously but but uh, um, Man, to get there, it is just gloomy. I mean, Solomon, who should have known better, you know, for being the wisest man on earth, you know, he was drawing a lot of stupid conclusions. But, uh, um, you know, he says it over and over 
and over again. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind. And what he was summarizing was life. Life is meaningless. And, and, and there, there's no purpose to it. We're just chasing after the wind. And of course, at the very end of the book, he brings God back into the equation in the last couple of verses, and, and that's where meaning and purpose and everything is found. And he should have known that from the very beginning because of his own dad's example, David's example, and, and the influence that, that David would have had. But you know, if there is no God, then the best that we can hope for would go kind of along the lines of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, where he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, that basically, although he's talking here about the resurrection, if there's no resurrection, but that would apply to this. If there is no God, then we might as well just try to live it up as much as we can in this moment. Because after this moment, there's nothing. And that leads me to another reason why it matters. Without God, there are no absolute standards or values. Who is to say what is right and what is wrong? In our society, we understand that certain behaviors are unacceptable, and um, while other ones' behaviors are expected. We, we just understand that. We're taught that as little children growing up, what's instilled by our parents, what's instilled by uh, the influencers in our church or in our school, and, and uh, that you know there are just certain behaviors that are appropriate and other ones that, that uh, aren't. But who has the right to determine that if there's no supreme being? Who has that right? What gives someone the right to tell me what I can and I cannot do if there is no God? Is it the one with power? Is that what gives someone the right, might, makes right? Well, that's a scary thought. But at different times in different cultures, different parts of the world, that is the way things have kind of worked. You, we've heard and we've studied history to know how that kind of stuff ends up turning out. That doesn't turn out too well. We fall back on, you know, that phrase, certain unalienable rights. You know, we, we like that phrase. It holds meaning to us. And it's a part of the Declaration of Independence. But the thing is, it says that within the context of understanding that our creator is the one who gave us those rights. I mean, it states that right there, along with that phrase. All men have been created equal. But if there is no creator, if there is no God, then you get to make your own rules. And I get to make my own rules. And if we clash, so be it. That sounds like chaos. And it would be chaos. Another reason it matters in regards to God's existence is that without God, there is no hope. And this really is the bottom line. 
This isn't that complicated when you think about the implications on this. If our existence is simply the result of random chance, just happenstance at some particular point in time, way, way, way back in the past, then death represents the end of our existence. Death is indeed the end of the road. There's nothing on the other side of the grave. Now, that, that goes, you know, contrary to what we know and believe and cherish and hold dear because we look at certain passages of Scripture like uh, this one, if I can get it to move, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1 says, For we know that when this tent we live in, our body here on earth, is torn down, God will have a house in heaven for us to live in, a home he himself has made, which will last forever. And Paul's using the analogy of how our bodies are like tents, meaning they're temporary. They're not going to stand the test of time. Eventually, they're going to wear out. But when that time comes, whenever that may be, the average lifespan is what? You know, 76 for a guy, 78 or 80 for, for a, a woman, you know, give or take, something like that. But when those tents wear out and we trade in our tent, we're doing just that. We're trading it in as people of faith because we've got a permanent home that's waiting for us. However, if there is no God, there's nothing permanent waiting for us. This tent is as good as it gets. You know, we've found comfort here recently because a couple of our dear brothers here in in the church, our brothers in the faith have, have passed away. Friday, Kevin Patrick's uh, service was held in this room, and, and Kevin, along with his wife Kathy, had been part of this church for 18 years. And uh, uh, Kevin was a man of faith, and if you had any opportunities to talk to him in recent months, uh, boy, you heard it. You heard it from what he shared, uh, how strong his faith is. But the reality is, if there is no God, then, then there is no verse like that that holds any truth to it. So we got to eliminate it. Two weeks ago, Friday, we had Rod Graham's funeral. And Rod, being a man of faith as well, had been a part of this church for a number of years. And as hard as it is, you know, grieving the loss of someone that, that we've developed relationships with and we care about, um, we take a lot of consolation and we gain comfort and strength in the hope that we have in Christ. But if there is no God, then there is no hope, at least any hope based in reality. And so this life is all that there is. So if you happen to contract some kind of a disease, if you get diagnosed with terminal cancer, if you die a premature death because of a car wreck or, or a heart attack or something like that, well, sorry. That's the luck of the draw. You had your chance as brief as, as it was. You see, it does matter whether there is a God because without God, there is no hope. So back to our original question, how do I know God exists? I want to give you a, 
uh, a couple answers to this because God has revealed himself to us. And he's done it in more than one way. He's revealed himself through his creation. I've always found it a bit interesting that as much as people talk about the existence of God, whether it's true or not true, um, uh, you know, part of you know the making of that decision and what goes into all of that, I find it interesting that when you go to the Bible from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of the book in Revelation, uh, the existence of God is just a given. It's not something that's even debated. There's not even any kind of space really being devoted to trying to convince us of the existence of God. It's just understood that God exists. That's the way the Bible and the revelation of Scripture, that's the way it approaches it. It approaches it from the standpoint that the evidence speaks for itself. In fact, David says it like this in Psalm 14, verse 1. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So that's, that's David's take on it, that uh, uh, he doesn't even attempt to make any kind of an emotional appeal to drive, to drive it home or to convince people. He's taking the angle of just saying that it's just a matter of common sense that there is a God. Now, in another one of the Psalms, he does go into a little more detail. He says this in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. And what David seems to be saying here is that that creation all around us speaks in a message in a universal language to all people groups around the world, regardless of what their individual languages are. This universal language testifies to the existence of God. That's basically what David is saying there. The whole cause and effect thing is the angle that he's approaching that from, I think. All of this couldn't have just appeared from nothing. There had to be a cause behind it all. Now, we've been taught, or at least a number of us have been taught, that the cause behind it all is something called the Big Bang. I'm not going to go into much detail on this because uh, this may be part of the direction that... Uh, Kurt is going to be going next Sunday. But, but this is part of, part of what uh, uh, we've been told, that the Big Bang, it explains so much of this um, as to why the existence of the Earth and our solar system and our, the Milky Way galaxy and all the other galaxies and all this exists. Now, that wasn't always the explanation. That actually started getting some footing uh, in the latter parts of the 19th century after Darwinism and all of this, um, little by little, many scientists began realizing that, that all things did have a beginning point because otherwise, if they are eternal, like if our sun is eternal and all these stars out there are eternal, they would have long since burned out and used up their fuel. 
They, they, they wouldn't be burning today. And so there had to be a beginning point. And so that's part of this whole explanation, this attempt that's been made in regards to the Big Bang Theory, this idea that from a singularity, a point of infinite density and gravity, that uh, there was this instability and 14 billion years ago, this big explosion took place. And so we have an expanding universe that we're a part of that continues to expand to this very day. And so the tail end of the 19th century and, of course, into the 20th century, they, it gained more and more momentum and more and more acceptance and, and oftentimes isn't even hardly referred to as the Big Bang Theory. It's more treated as being a fact. But what the Bible is saying is that the existence of this world, the existence of the universe that we find ourselves living in, here points to the existence of someone above it all, a cause that brought all of this into being. This is exactly what Paul was getting at in the New Testament. So we see some indications in the Old Testament of this stuff being brought up. You see it in the New Testament as well, like in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse without excuse in regards to the existence of God. Now, he's not claiming that we know God in a personal way as a result of looking at creation around us, but we know of God's existence by looking at the world, the universe around us. The whole, again, the whole cause and effect thing. Anyone wanting to deny the existence of the Almighty God has to provide an answer to one supreme question. Where did the universe come from? That is what's got to be answered. Where did the universe come from? And even with the Big Bang Theory, that question isn't answered. Where did that initial atom or particle of infinite density, where did that come from before it exploded? It existed. Where did it come from? I'm not going to get into talking about some of the things that we have from time to time talked in here, even within recent months, you know, about the moon's distance from the earth and the effect on tides and cleaning the shorelines and stuff like that, or the distance of the earth being exactly right from the sun in order uh, for us to have a range of temperatures that, you know, human life can can exist with. I'm not going to go into those details or talking about the uh, influence of uh, the gravitational influence of Jupiter on um, on asteroids, you know, where we're told that, uh, you know, we deal with meteorites and, and all, but uh, asteroids, you know, that, that's just something that doesn't happen very often, and we can count our blessings for that, right? Well, you know, we're told that the the placement of, of Jupiter, where it is at, the gravitational pull influence that Jupiter has, that it, it affects asteroids and, uh, and actually has helped, you know, the Earth not to be hit by these. 
Yeah, we could go into talking about some of that kind of stuff, but we've dealt with some of that before. I would love to be able to talk about the woodpeckers. Um, woodpeckers, I've always been fascinated with woodpeckers. In fact, I've, some of you might recall, you know, um, year or longer ago, I was showing pictures on the screen of woodpeckers, and one of the most fascinating things involves their tongue. I mean, I'm just, I'm blown away from the fact that a woodpecker can do what it can do without getting a headache. I mean, that right there in and of itself fascinates me and we've got a woodpecker that comes around this time of year every year and uh, the, his first appearance he he was he had it out for our neighbor's house I'm not really sure why but boy he kept attacking the house but he ended up settling on this telephone pole that we have at the back property line um, in our lot and uh, there's all kinds of holes in this telephone uh, pole and just beating away on that and, and endlessly. And that's always fascinated me. But what fascinates me even more, and if you've never done this, you, you'll need to Google it. If you've never studied this before, because you need to look at some of the images. Not right now, but, you know, <laughs> um, this week or, or maybe next Sunday. Kurt's preaching next Sunday. You can... Um, but a woodpecker's tongue is just this incredible thing that kind of goes out and around. On the outside of the skull, you know, it, it goes over the skull, and then it comes back around and goes through a nostril and, and then out the beak of a woodpecker. It's the craziest looking thing, but yet it works for what a woodpecker does when, when he's you know, hammering out these little holes and trying to get these bugs and stuff. And it's just, it's one of the most fascinating things. How did something like that just over a long extended period of time, you know, come into existence? Uh, but something, and I've got to show you an image on this because back when my boys were about this big, uh, I took them, we were living about three hours north of St. Louis, and I took them uh, to a conference, a Christian conference down in St. Louis. Ken Ham, some of you will recognize that name. In fact, he's the guy that's behind the building of the ark, you know, that maybe some of you have visited and seen that based on biblical dimensions and all just south of Cincinnati. Um, anyway, Ken Ham was leading this uh, uh, conference, and it was, it was for grade school kids, and so I'd taken the boys there, and, uh, you know, and I just thought, okay, I'm just going to hear a lot of stuff I already know, and hopefully the boys will get something out of it, but I think I was the one sitting on the edge of my seat more than, than anybody, and he got to talking about this little critter right here, the Bombardier Beetle. And as he started talking about the detail, in far more detail than what I'm going to reference, um, it, it was just like, man, that is obvious evidence that uh, this thing could not have evolved over a long period of time. In, in its uh, abdomen, there's two different chambers, and when the contents of those chambers uh, connect with one another, there's an explosion. 
And you see the temperature that's referenced there that's created. And so you can actually go online and you can watch videos of this, of a frog basically licking its lips, you know, looking at this beetle thinking, okay, there's lunch. And then the frog in lightning speed with its tongue, you know, grabs a hold of the beetle and has the beetle in the mouth just like that, but almost as quickly all of a sudden, the frog's mouth opens back up, and it spits its entire tongue out, and it's just kind of laying there with that bug attached to the end of it because the bug ignited and just created a lot of heat inside the mouth of the frog. It's a defense mechanism, and it's like, how in the world did something like that develop over a long period of time? Anyway... Uh, you see, you see the sort of things that fascinate me. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but the way David said it in Psalm 19 is, is that basically there is this universal language when we look at creation around us, and it testifies to the existence of God. And like Paul says it, we're without excuse you know, to deny his existence. We don't have an excuse. So we know, we know that, that uh, God has revealed himself through creation. Another way that he has revealed himself is through Jesus. In so many ways, this is the best and clearest answer to whether or not there is a God. And it's the fact that he has visited us. Now, a couple of the gospel writers like Luke and Matthew, you know, they talk about the Bethlehem story and the manger and all of that, which is great for creating nativities and children's stories and stuff like that. But I actually prefer John's, uh, the Apostle John's gospel, the way he begins, because John kind of leapfrogs over Bethlehem and he goes way back. And here's what we read in the opening verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then a couple of verses later, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You see, a big part of what John is driving home is, is that Jesus, his origins stretch way back into eternity. But uh, he also is making it very clear that Jesus has revealed God the Father to us. We know who God is through looking at Jesus, listening to Jesus, watching Jesus. At the very end of Jesus' time on earth, on his last full day, with his disciples, he uh, was passing on some important teaching to them. And then Philip asked a question, uh, which I, I, I'm glad he asked this question. It's found in John 14. Jesus says, if you know me, you will also know my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, this is what Philip says, show us the father. And that's good enough for us. Jesus said to him, now, now remember that verse in Jude, be merciful to those who doubt. Um, and, you know, I, I can just 
hear Jesus' tone of voice and the expression on his face as he's in a merciful way, you know, cutting a little slack here to Philip. He says this, Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? After three plus years of time that Jesus had spent with them, Jesus is saying, you've seen the Father because you've seen me, because you've gotten to know me. During Jesus' ministry, uh, he was very intentional in letting people see and understand this. One time he was teaching in a house and it was very crowded and there were these four guys that were bringing their friend on a cot and they wanted Jesus, his attention, but they couldn't get in because the house was so crowded. So they got up on the roof and they dug a hole in the roof and they lowered the guy on ropes on his cot. And of course that would have interrupted any teaching and all that Jesus was doing. And Jesus looked at the man who was paralyzed and looked at the four friends and saw their faith. And then he said, your sins are forgiven. That immediately created a reaction among some of the people in the room. Um, their reaction included mumbling words like, come on, here we go, uh, mumbling words like this. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. And that's exactly what Jesus was wanting them to be thinking through, connecting those dots. They hear Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And some of the people are like, say, what? No, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to do that. Only God can do that. And so then right after that, Jesus says, which would be easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can measure that, right? But if you say stand up and walk, everybody's going to lean forward and open their eyes. They're not going to blink because they want to see what happens next. And so then after Jesus asks that question, he looks back at the guy and he says, stand up, pick up your cot and walk. And the guy does. And not only did that end up being a miracle of a healing that took place, but it also reinforced that right there that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus is God. And that was the very point that Jesus was wanting to drive home. On another occasion, and this, this illustrates the value of reading all parts of the Bible, not just the favorite parts or not just the New Testament. This, this is why if you've never read all the way through the Bible, you need to at least attempt to do that, you know, a time or two. Um, there was this that happened with Jesus that it may not trigger a insight on your part if you haven't read certain parts of the Old Testament. It's found in John chapter 8. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Well, that seems like an exaggerated response. What's going on here? Well, what Jesus just said, he was claiming to be God. And all of the people that had a Jewish understanding of the scriptures, which at that time was just the Old Testament scriptures, they all knew the story of the burning bush and the call of Moses. And Moses asking uh, the voice of God there at the burning bush, saying, well, if I go back to the people and they ask me who sent, uh, who sent me, 
to them, what do I tell them? What is your name? And that's when God says, I am that I am. The name of God, I am. And so here we have Jesus all this time later, and he's saying before Abraham, which on a timeline, this is before Abraham, before Abraham was born, I am. And so they picked up rocks because this is blasphemy. But Jesus was claiming to be the voice at the bush, to be the one that was speaking to Moses. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, when Jesus touched lepers, when he hung out with tax collectors and sinners, when he voluntarily allowed them to arrest him and to flog him and to crucify him, all of that sheds light and insight into our seeing the heart of God. All of that helps us to gain a very personal understanding of God and his love for us. You see, God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself through creation. He's revealed himself through Jesus. And we could continue talking because there are multiple other ways as well that he has revealed himself. He's revealed himself through his word, you know, that was written over a span of time in like 1,500 years by 40 different writers on several different continents. And yet it all tells one continuous, harmonious story of God's love for us and how strongly he wants to be close to us. And, and so, so God has revealed himself through his word. He's revealed himself through changed lives. You know, if some of us had the opportunity to be able to see a before and after picture of when we first came to Christ, however many years ago that was, and where we're at now, I would like to hope to think that, that there's a change that has happened, and it has, has more to do with transformation than it does aging when we look at the before and after. And that's because God specializes in changing people's lives, and that is a testimony to the work of God. This is one of the values, one of the additional values of being a part of a church body is that we're able to rub shoulders and get to know people and hear their stories and, and to, to hear that, you know, sometimes some of the most loving and, and, and selfless people, when we find out the whole story and the way they used to be many years ago, and it, it's a far cry from where they're at now, they've changed in some really dynamic ways. And all of that testifies to the work of God in the life of a believer. Yeah. God has revealed himself in multiple ways. The devil will do everything he can to blind you to that so you don't see it, so you don't notice it, or you don't connect those dots. But the evidence is there. The thing is, you just got to open your eyes to see it, open your ears to hear it, and you'll pick up on it. I would encourage you this week, you know, in between times of Googling woodpecker tongues and stuff like that, I would encourage you just to spend some time with your eyes open, just to soak in and to notice the fingerprints of God in regards to ways in places that's right underneath your nose 
but you were just kind of busy living life and you didn't even notice it before. It's all over the place. We're without excuse. God does exist and the evidence is all over the place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity today to be able to to talk about a topic that matters. And Lord, especially if there be someone that's listening either online or or listening here this morning, um, and they're struggling with doubts, wrestling within themselves, you know, regarding this or maybe some other uh, questions, uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit will just bring uh, reassurance and comfort and just help help them to sort through what it is that uh, uh, you want them to see, Lord, so they might grow in their faith. Thank you for your patience, Lord, because you full well know that for some of us, uh, it's taken a long time to get to where we're at. But I pray that you find us being open and cooperative with your spirit to do that all-important work in our lives that enables us to get closer and closer to you. We celebrate your love and your patience. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.